I just pray that you would use this time to glorify yourself. I pray, Father, we would lift up your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for life, even when it gets busy. We thank you, Father, even for the turning of the weather and the reminder of changes and seasons and, Lord, the beauty of every season. And now I just pray, Father, our hearts, our minds would be here in this place at this time to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've talked about this before, not to this extent, but at Northland there was a particular professor who was unusually talented and unusually gifted. First of all, he was, uh, uh, Dr. Bennett was an incredible athlete. The, uh, the faculty would get together every Friday at lunchtime to have a basketball game. Uh, and if you went to watch, uh, he was clearly the most athletic guy on the floor. He had helped win national championships at Northland when he was a student there. On top of that, when I had him as a professor, he was in his late 30s. He had already finished one doctorate, had started uh, working on a second one. Uh, the, The man was simply brilliant. And the thing that irked all of us the most, I should say all of us guys the most, is that every incoming freshman class of girls thought he was the best looking guy on campus. And I'm not really sure if that was the, uh, the measurement my wife had. I don't really want to know. Uh, but, uh, but that seemed to be the consensus. This professor was, uh, was the total package. And so you might go somewhere like that and ask yourself the question, why would somebody with his athletic gifts, why would somebody with his brilliance, he was already the head of the education department, I think today, uh, he is running the education department for Bob Jones University. Uh, why would somebody that brilliant, why would somebody that talented, why would somebody apparently that handsome go and teach history at a backwoods college in northern Wisconsin? You see, to complete the package, Dr. Bennett was a very spiritual man. He was always ready to try and find a way to encourage you with your walk with the Lord. He taught history with the intention of trying to help us future pastors understand the context of our Bible, understand the context of the world that we're going to go and minister in. He wanted us, he wanted every student, whether they were going to be a Christian school teacher, a missionary, or a pastor, he wanted all of them as equipped as possible to tell the world about Jesus. Now, last week, uh, we looked at a sermon or a discourse that Jesus gave to the twelve, talking about a mark, at least one of the qualities of somebody who's a disciple or follower of Jesus. And the quality we looked at was that they were different. And not the kind of different that gets you a laugh, not the kind of different that uh, has people go, wow, that was unexpected. But the idea of being different in a way that, if in life, seems to invite criticism. Even unfairly, if we're different in certain ways, for some people it creates these unfair questions. Why would you do it that way? People get criticized for the way they educate their children. People get criticized about the way they dress. People get criticized about what they do with their weekend. And and you're constantly having to answer the question, why you do those things? And you have to say, it's because I follow Jesus. And it leads to that question. Why would a talented, gifted man like Dr. Bennett be in northern Wisconsin? Why would he do that with his life? 
Now, the most natural question to follow this would be, is Jesus worth it? If we're going to be called to be different and we're going to be called to do things that are going to open us to criticism and they're going to open us to, uh, to people wondering why we're making the decisions we're making, the question then becomes, is Jesus worth it? You see, Matthew's told us that Jesus is going to send his followers like sheep unto the wolves. The first readers of Matthew's Gospels certainly were not expecting that. If you see, he talks about the fact that you might get arrested. There might be death. There's going to be betrayals by people that you love and you thought loved you. That would not have been expected. Jesus telling people that if you follow him, things might go sideways is probably not the best evangelistic message. So naturally, what Matthew has to do at this point in his gospel is get us back to looking at Jesus and reminding us that he is worth it because he is everything. And that's what Matthew wants to do in this text this morning. He wants to give us reminders that Jesus is everything. Number one this morning, Jesus, number one, Jesus is the answer to our doubts. Jesus is the answer to our doubts. We see in the opening of the text, John the baptizer sends a couple of his disciples asking the question, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? Now note the text tells us in verse 2 that he asks the question because of what he had heard Jesus was doing. Now, if we go back over the text that we've been over, we can tell you what Jesus has been doing, right? He's been healing the blind. He's been uh, healing the lame. He's been uh, casting out demons. He's even been raising the dead. He's been eating with sinners. If we go further back to Matthew chapter 3, we see that John had an expectation of what Jesus was going to do. He identifies Jesus as the one who had come to judge. So... John thought Jesus was one thing. It's clear that John heard what Jesus was doing, and there was an expectation there that was not being met. John thought Jesus was going to do one thing. Jesus is doing something different. And this bothers John. And why wouldn't it? John has preached faithfully. John has lived a life deprived of all the earthly goods you could possibly want. He's even now in jail for confronting political leaders because of their corruption. He expected Jesus to be the guy who was going to put the whole world the right way. John expected that this was going to be the guy who was going to deal with the injustices of the world and set them right. It was the guy who was going to make sure the Greeks and the Romans and the Samaritans, they were finally going to get what was coming to them. But how does Jesus respond to John's question? He says to the disciples, go back to John and tell him again what you see and what you hear. Tell him again about the blind receiving their sight. Tell them again, tell him again about the lame walking, the lepers being cleansed, the deaf hearing, the dead rising. Go and tell John that the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached to the very poor. And tell John that blessed is the one who is not offended. We know that John's not the only one in the Gospels who thought Jesus was here to put everything right. 
We know that the feeding of the 5,000, for example, after he fed the 5,000 and everybody's bellies were full, they were ready to go and make him king. They thought he was here for political reasons. We know that at least some of the people on the day that Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem, some of those people had political aspirations. They thought that this was the moment that Jesus was going to finally overthrow Rome and bring in the kingdom and set the world the right way. But that instead, what do we get? We get a Savior that's focused on the blind, the deaf, the lame. We, fo- we have a Savior focused on the lost sheep, the poorest of the poor. We have a Savior who is interested in talking to people about their problem of sin. More than he's interested in talking about corrupt political leaders, about terrible religious leaders, about what we would consider uh, a kitchen table issues. We find out that Jesus is not this rebellious military leader that some of them wanted to be. And we find him, he's not this uber-religious leader that some wanted them to be that would come along and judge and condemn the wicked to the depths of hell. And so we have to look at John's doubts. And where is the doubt coming from? Where does doubt show up in your life? In my years of counseling, I can tell you that doubt in a person's life always shows up in the same condition. It's when the expectations and the experiences are not matching up. That's when doubt has a tendency to show its head. Job, think of Job. He's in the midst of, uh, of raising children the right way and, and doing things the right way, being faithful to God, and suddenly suffering comes. I think of Habakkuk, who looked out of the world and said, God, it's evil out there. What are you going to do? And God says, you're right, I'm going to send the Babylonians to judge my people. That caught Habakkuk off guard. You go through the Psalms, and you look at Asaph, and you look at David, and they wondered out loud, Lord, I I thought this was going to go this way. But what we see here in this answer is the uh, the key to dealing with doubt. And the key to dealing with doubt, the answer is in Jesus' answer. Go and see and hear what Jesus has done. When there's a difference between your expectations and your experiences, the answer that Jesus gives is to be reminded that he is better than your expectations. All the ways he is different than your expectations are all the ways that he is better than your expectations. He is walking, talking, living good news. Now, there is a group out there. There are actually several groups out that teach that when you have these experiences, when you have an expectation... And your experience doesn't match up to those expectations when it comes to Jesus. There are groups out there that say the only reason that would happen is because of your lack of faith. You expected Jesus to find you the perfect mate. And here you are, single. And they would respond to your situation and say, well, you know what? It's because you didn't have enough faith. Or perhaps you prayed and prayed for someone's cancer to go away, and it didn't, and your loved one died. And they would respond, you know why the the, the expectations and the experiences don't match up? is because you didn't have enough faith. What a shameful and harmful teaching. When what Jesus does is different than what you expect, 
It is because who he is and what he does is better than your expectations. The answer for you in your times of struggling with doubt, the answer is not to chastise your faith. The answer to your doubt is to elevate Christ. That's what Matthew is doing here. He's trying to get you and me to elevate our Christology. Matthew is saying it is impossible to think too highly of Jesus. No matter the context, no matter the expectation, Jesus is and what he is and who he is and what he teaches is always better. Always, always, always good news. So Matthew wants us to answer the question, is Jesus worth it? Yes, he's everything. He is the answer to our doubts. That brings us to our next reminder, number two, this morning. Jesus is the fulfillment of our longings. He is the fulfillment of our longings. So after answering John's question and sending the disciples along their way, he turns to the crowd and he asks the question, why did you go to the wilderness to see John? Did you go out there to see a reed shaken by the wind? It's his day and age of uh, of saying, did you go out there to see a flash in the pan? Did you go out there looking for somebody in nice clothes? Did you go out there thinking there was going to be somebody out there who's going to tell you or show you how to get the pleasures of life? What did you go out there to see? He said, did you go out there to see a prophet? Yes, John was a prophet. But then he goes further. He wasn't just any old prophet. He identifies him, first of all, as the promised prophet, the one who was going to be there before the Messiah came. And he wasn't just that, Messiah, that prophet. John was the greatest prophet, greater than Moses and Isaiah and Daniel and all of them. He's saying John is the super prophet. Clearly, the intention here is to elevate John before the people, identify him for them so they would understand. He was the one to prepare for the one who would finally bring the kingdom. But then I want you to also notice here in the text, we get two very interesting phrases. First of all, as great as John was, Jesus says that those who are in the kingdom, verse 11, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he or greater than John. The idea here is of testimony. You see, John could only talk about what was coming. Jesus saying those who are part of the kingdom, those people can testify more completely. He's saying, for example, a seven-year-old who saw Jesus heal the blind has a greater thing to share than John did. The testimony of one who has seen Jesus and believed in Jesus is a greater testimony than John does. The idea is that the person who can speak to something greater than the announcement is the person who can testify to the reality. Then we get a second difficult phrase. He says, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. The idea here is of conflict. Galatians tells us that God has all through history tried to shape and form history to bring about certain things in certain ways, especially leading to the birth of Christ. And what he's saying here is that there have always been evil men, always those who have resisted, always those who have tried to oppose God's kingdom. And so Jesus ends all of it by saying, once again, John is the promised prophet, the one who was announcing the one who would bring the kingdom, hear and believe. Now, I've pointed this out to you before. People of Jesus' day, the, the kingdom was everything. 
The kingdom was what they were waiting for. The kingdom was the, the, the thing that would bring them back to the glory days of David and Solomon. It was the kingdom that would eventually put food on the table and give them safety from their enemies. They believed that those who were religious would be rewarded. So you see, we have to understand, Jesus is saying to them, if John was the one who announced the person who would bring the kingdom, Jesus is now identifying himself as the one who would bring the kingdom. And then you ask the question, what does that have to do with me? How many of you have ever been frustrated with living in a world that's broken? We're no different than the people of Jesus' day. We're bothered by the struggle to put food on the table. We're bothered by the struggle of corrupt political leaders. It's hard to live when you feel like you're just one piece of bad news away from hopelessness. And most of us like to sit around and dream about our ship coming in. I remember in college, I would lay in my bunk, and I was pretty sure by the time I was 30, I'd be preaching to five, six, seven thousand 7,000 people. My ship would come in. People would recognize how awesome I am. We, we daydream about those things. We, we, we daydream about the right person getting elected. We daydream about the, the, the people that we're going to have in our life. And we're going to do it all the right way. And we're going to get this paradise. We dream about it in our stories, don't we? We love the stories about the girl that everybody at school thought was ugly. But then she gets the extreme makeover and now she's beautiful. We love the stories about the underdog who scores the game-winning point. We like the superheroes who always arrive in time. And some of us even like the marshal who's always somehow able to outgun the bad guys. We dream about this. We think about this. A a world, a place, a, a, a desire for something better than what we have in front of us. And what Jesus is saying, and as Christians, what we respond to that is we have the audacity to say there's only one answer to this longing for paradise. This desire for a kingdom or a world that's better than the one we have can only be filled by Jesus. John foretells the kingdom. Jesus brings the kingdom. He's supposed to be the object of your worship. He is to be your daily investment. The thing, the fulfillment that you long for, the deepest part of you longs for, will not come with a spouse, will not come with education, a diet, a job, money, possessions, power, age, and so on. It can only be satisfied by Christ. And what Matthew's doing here in this section is trying to push us so that we are even higher in our thoughts about Jesus. And that leads me to number three, the finally... And these reminders that Jesus is worth it, these reminders that that Jesus is everything. Number three, Jesus is the king of our lives. After pointing to himself to relieve our doubts and pointing to himself as the fulfillment of our internal longings, he points to himself as the rightful king of our life. I love this picture. He says, what shall I describe these people like? And he uses a picture of children playing. Two games he invites them to play. First of all, they come along and say, we're going to play the flute. The idea there is we're going to pretend it's a wedding. Any of your kids ever done that? Played wedding in the house? So we're going to play a game. We're going to have a wedding. Now, in Jesus' day, it wasn't like our weddings where we want it done within 25 to 30 minutes and we need to get to the food and and, and take the pictures and all that kind of stuff. In Jesus' day, a wedding could last for days. 
A wedding had, uh, had food and, and, and wine in abundance. And so people would wake up and they would eat and they'd go to bed. And then they'd wake up and they'd eat and they'd drink and they'd dance and they'd rejoice. And they would do this for days. It was this happy thing. And so kids would play wedding where they would sit down and pretend they were feasting and drinking. And then they'd get up and they would start dancing. And, and that was the game that was played. But Jesus says, you were invited to play and you didn't play. So he invited you to a second game. This time we're going to play funeral. If you guys don't want to play wedding, let's play funeral. I mentioned before, in Jesus' day, there were professional mourners. People you would hire specifically to come and make a lot of noise at your funeral. The intention there was to build up the attendance of what we would describe as the funeral so that everybody would look out and see how wonderful and how loved this person was. It was a, there was a politics to it even. Uh, uh, somebody who was going to take over the synagogue would uh, make sure there were good professional mourners at his predecessor's funeral so that he could say, look how loved he was, understand, I'm going to be just like him. And so that was a game they would play. They would all pretend to be professional mourners at a funeral. The kids didn't want to play that game. They're fickle. They won't respond to any call to come and play. And then Jesus explains the picture. He says, John, John is the one who, who invited you to come and believe through seriousness. John was the most religious of men. He didn't drink. He didn't, he didn't eat fine foods. He didn't dance. John's message was one of repentance. People would come to John, ask them what to do to change their life. John had confrontations with religious leaders and politicians. But nobody would listen to John. They thought he was crazy. I mean, you would too, right? He wears camels and eats locusts. But then Jesus comes along. And he invites people to believe through glad tidings. Jesus goes to weddings. He turns water into wine. He goes and he has supper at everybody's house. He helps the poor. He heals the sick. He hands out food. He comforts the broken. He shows love and mercy and grace. And yet the people wouldn't listen to him either. They claimed he wasn't holy enough wasn't serious enough and their fickleness their refusal to hear and believe brings jesus to these woes the word woe just simply means calamity and these are some heavy hard words because he says to the crowd he says you know what if the people of tyre and sidon if you know your old testament tyre and sidon were two cities that were heavily economically uh important These were two cities that had lots of money. The people who lived there had lots of money. They would spend all of their time using and living for money. They were greedy for everything. And Jesus says, if if I had gone to Tyre and Sidon and preached what I preached and did what I did, the people of Tyre and Sidon, they would recognize who I was and repent. But you won't. He says, you know what? You know the story of Sodom. We know that Sodom didn't even have 10 righteous or good people in it. We know that it was a city that was full of people who did nothing day and night but search and find the next pleasurable thing. It was, uh, it was everything you could get pleasure out of and find pleasure in any way. That was the people of Sodom. And Jesus said, if they had seen me and they had heard what I preached and they had seen what I had done, they would recognize me for who I was and they have repented and they would have been saved, but you will not. And the point of all of it is to recognize that Jesus is the one who will be doing the judging. 
He's the king. So you see, the problem here is not a struggle with doubt. It's not a struggle with questions about existence. The problem is they simply would not hear. They would not believe. They would not respond. Instead, they would sit back and they would criticize. They were the kids on the corner who saw the other kids playing, saying, playing wedding is stupid. They were the kid in the classroom, no matter what you did, no matter what way you tried to encourage them, was just continuously disruptive. These people had everything we would want, right? They get to see Jesus in the flesh. They get to to bear witness to these undeniable miracles. They get to hear him speak. They get to experience his love and his mercy. And yet they are unmoved. Because of Jesus, because of this, Jesus says they're condemned. And if they're condemned for refusing him, what does that say about him? It says he's the only way to be right with God, that his commandments are God's commandments. And do you see how Matthew, once again, is trying to lift Christ even higher to put him in this rightful place of the final and greatest authority in our lives? If church history is to be believed, Matthew died in Ethiopia. Now, if that's the case, and we really just don't have a lot of evidence that that's the case, but if that's the case, he went to Ethiopia and he preached this message at a time when Ethiopia had a powerful central government. He went into a place like that and preached that Jesus was the only king. We know that that didn't sit well with the emperor of Rome. People who would make that declaration were considered treason, uh, treasonous. They were considered people who were no longer uh, reliable to be patriotic. It's why the, the message is so clear. It's why Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? There's no mistaking what Jesus is saying here. I am the final and great authority. Hear, believed, be saved. Or be condemned. So, so why follow Jesus? See, after all these things that Matthew is telling us, he has to come back to this. Why? Why follow Jesus? Why deal with the difficulties and the, and the impossible callings and the, and the being different? Why go through the arrest and the betrayals and the rejection? And Matthew's response here is to lift him higher and say that Jesus is everything. In this passage, we're encouraged again and again and again to lift Jesus up and then to lift him higher. When everything inside of us wants to reject following him, everything inside of us wants to be fickle, everything inside of us wants to be contrary, Matthew says the answer is to lift him higher. When we long for relief from all the turmoil and struggle and the sim habits and the shame, we're told to lift him higher. And in response to the times of doubt, when following Jesus does not go as expected, we're told the answer is to lift him higher because he is everything. Is it worth it? Matthew's answer is yes. Because in him is everything, and he is everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these reminders from Matthew. 
as we do deal with the difficulties that come with following you, as we see the world around us sneer and criticize, as we see things said about us that aren't true, as we struggle with our own doubts and longings and wonder whether or not you really have said things to us, I thank you, Father, for Matthew's reminders of who you are. And I pray we would be obedient to what is commanded here, and that is to lift Jesus higher. Because in him, and he is everything. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.